Well, today, Kirsten and I celebrate seven years of marriage. That's pretty big. I feel like there's a lot of people who have fours or fives at the start of their anniversary number. Uh, But hey, seven years is pretty good. We've been reading Revelation. Uh, Seven represents perfection. So this is the year we perfect our marriage. Maybe. But an anniversary is a moment where you kind of you think back and you remember that day. You remember the wedding day. Kirst and I were looking through some photos this morning. Uh, there were a couple. So Liam was at our wedding and we got to see how young he looked. Ben was there as well. We got to see how much more hair Ben had back in those days. Uh, but we also, as we, we looked at it, we remembered the fuss, the, the excitement, uh, but all the busyness in preparing for that big day. In, in fact... Uh, I'm particularly thinking about it this week because uh, my brother's wedding is this coming Saturday uh, and I get to watch them go through all that pain of trying to get things just right. I'm actually uh, the best man and so they've got the difficult job of making me look respectable. Uh, And so so they've got their work cut out for them. Uh, And and it is interesting as we come to the big day, uh, watching them stress over every little detail... uh, And they do that not because of anything other than the significance of that day, right? They want this day that they've been waiting for for so long to be just right. They want it to be a fitting day to celebrate this thing that's happening. Because it's not not just a day that happens and it's over. It's, It's the beginning of something. It's the beginning of something new. Uh, and I think as we think about that, we reflect on that, it gives us a, a great starting point to think about this passage. Uh, see, this last chapter of Revelation, uh, last couple of chapters of Revelation and of the Bible, uh, is describing a new era. Uh, and not the, just the end, but the beginning of something. Uh, heaven is described as arriving like a bride. Uh, this passage, this picture of heaven, uh, is like a bride long awaited. Uh, there's been this long and painful build-up. And we've seen that as we've worked our way through Revelation. We've seen uh, the suffering church, uh, all that it's gone through as they wait for this moment, are waiting for things to be made right. And that's particularly true of this original church that would have been reading these words, uh, these people who were so heavily persecuted for their faith. Uh, but like a wedding, when the moment arrives, it's, it's not the end of things, it's just the beginning. Uh, And Revelation 21 shows us the beginning, this picture of what things will be, this picture of heaven. A picture of a future time uh, when for God's people, those who've overcome in the language of Revelation, uh, there'll be no more tears, nor death, nor mourning, nor crying, or pain. Uh, It's an incredible picture. A picture that, that I hope all Christians look forward to. But I suspect that we don't look forward to it quite as much as we should. See, I don't think we quite understand the depth of just how incredible a place heaven is. Uh, Well, the goal here tonight uh, is to get a better look at what heaven is really like uh, and why we, who follow Jesus, should be longing to be there. Uh, See, as we think about it, I think part of the problem is that the world feeds us all sorts of ideas of what heaven will be like that throw us off. So the traditional picture that we pick up on TV... Angels sitting on clouds, we've got the wings and we're playing harps. Uh, and you could be forgiven 
for not being super excited about that. Who wants to sit on a cloud for all eternity playing a harp? Give me a guitar at least. And it doesn't help uh, that there's lots in this passage that on the surface makes you question how good it really is. Look at verse 1, straight up. Oh, what have I done? There it is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea? What kind of heaven is this? If I want to imagine perfection, this is not the place to start, is it? We keep reading and we find out that heaven is described as this gigantic city. Now, I don't know about you, but when I moved up here, one of the the big reliefs, I left the city. And now I'm going to a city in heaven. See, you can kind of see why this passage is misunderstood, why why we don't have the excitement that we really should about heaven. Uh, And so the goal here today, as we wrap our heads around this passage, is to try and uh, get a better picture of heaven. Uh, Get a better picture of this paradise that we we long for. Uh, And the way we're going to do that uh, is with uh, these kind of steps. Firstly, we're going to see how we're supposed to read this passage, how to make sense of it all. Uh, And we've done that a bit as we've made our way through Revelation. We've kind of seen this... Uh, apocalyptic literature and and how we navigate some of that style of writing. Uh, So we'll have a bit of a look at that again. And then after that, our second and third points will be the two big images that come up in the passage. Uh, This image of the city and and this image of the bride. Uh, And of course, as always, we'll finish by thinking about what does it look like for us? How how do we put this stuff into practice? How do we live it out? Um, Now, so the first thing uh, is how we're supposed to read this passage uh, and that's something we've seen a lot through Revelation, uh, is that this writing, this book, is just rich and full of other parts of the Bible, these references, these allusions to, to all sorts of things that have come before it. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that we can't go close to understanding the, the full extent of the meaning here, uh, of what's being described, without it being informed Uh, from the rest of the Bible. So if you just read this passage on its own, you'd miss uh, a whole bunch if you're not connecting it to the the other parts in the Bible it's alluding to. Um, We'll see as we look through the passage that it's just dripping with these images from from elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, And so I want to give you just one example of that to start with. Uh, Have a look at these words from the book of Isaiah. Uh, We're going to be reading from chapter 65. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen. As I read it, I want you to keep those first couple of verses from uh, Revelation 21 in mind. Uh, So here it is, Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight. And it's people of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. And now there's more than just a passing similarity there, isn't there? Uh, And it's not supposed to be a coincidence. It's not just some happenstance that these two uh, passages seem so similar. As we read Revelation 21, uh, we're supposed to be picking up those, not just words, but the context and the meaning that that's going on in Isaiah. That should all be springing to mind. See, this passage in Revelation is is capturing a whole bunch of ideas that have come from the rest of the Bible. Uh, And it's showing their fulfilment there in heaven. 
And so these words that we read uh, in Revelation are, that are so similar to what we read in Isaiah take on this new depth. There's more information here than just words. Uh, but we see uh, this hope after judgment. So uh, as we understand what ha- what's happening in Isaiah, we see this hope after the judgment that we see in Isaiah. Uh, the picture that Isaiah paints of not just the remnant of Israel, uh, but of every nation belonging to this new Jerusalem. All of that is caught up uh, in what we're reading in Revelation 21. And so here in Revelation 21, we see connections to, to just so, so many other parts of the Bible uh, from both old and new. Uh, and we want to recognise that understanding those passages is really important to understanding this passage. Uh, in fact, uh, in many ways, this passage draws a whole lot of those parts of the Bible into their final fulfilment. Uh, this new creation is a lasting one. And so this is where a whole bunch of God's promises are finally fully realised. Fully realized. Um, so just to give you a sense, uh, there's a list of some of the really obvious allusions from other parts of the Bible that come up here in Revelation 21. There's much, much more than that, but these are the really obvious ones. Uh, and so we're not going to pick up all of those references. Um, we'll pick up some as we go. And that's just the Old Testament, not the New Testament. Uh, and so it's just important to hold in mind that we can't read this without... Uh, reflecting back on the rest of the Bible. Um, now, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is that the, this is apocalyptic writing. It's a style of writing that was common, that was known then, uh, and it's the nature of this writing to, that there's uh, all sorts of symbols and things going on, and we want to acknowledge that. Uh, so this writing is trying to paint us a word picture uh, of something that's going on. And, and I want to say a word picture is distinctly different from a picture picture. Uh, so uh, the idea isn't that you'd read this passage and then be able to draw a picture of heaven. Uh, the idea is that you'll hear these words and it will capture a whole bunch of ideas uh, for you to understand. Um, now, I'll give you a bit of an example of that. Uh, so back in Revelation chapter 5... Uh, we saw Jesus described there as both the Lion of Judah as well as one who appeared as a lamb that was slain. Um, now, the idea as you read that wasn't to go away and draw some sort of hybrid lamb-lion creature. Uh, though of course, plenty of people read that and they have a go at it. So there's an example. Uh, but this isn't about his physical appearance being like a lion and a lamb. Uh, The words are trying to capture for us his identity and not so much his looks. Uh, And so as we read this stuff, we'll be confronted with all sorts of mixed messages and metaphors, um, mixed images and metaphors. Uh, So Revelation 21 is about the only place in the world that you're allowed to mix the image of a bride with the image of a city. Uh, So if I go to my brother's wedding and I make my speech and I make that comparison... It's not going to go very well. She won't appreciate being likened to a city. Uh, but putting them together here in Revelation 21 gives us uh, some ideas, and that's what we're going to be exploring today. Uh, and so uh, we get these images mushed together, uh, and, and so it's not describing a physical appearance, uh, but it's trying to tell us something about their nature. Uh, so think about that first verse where we're told that there's no longer any sea. And now that's much less about whether I get the scenery that I so enjoy. Uh, Rather, it's about this thing that's symbolic of evil and chaos through Revelation, the sea. 
Uh, and, and that evil and chaos no longer existing in heaven. Uh, will there be an ocean there? Maybe, maybe not. But that's not the point of that line. Uh, it's not the point of this passage. Uh, let me put it to you in a different way. Uh, I want you to imagine sitting down with someone who has been born blind, so they've never been able to see, uh, and then try and explain to them what different colours are like. How would you do that? How, how could you explain colours in terms that they could understand? It would be very hard, wouldn't it? Uh, it's something they've never seen. You can't just say, oh, it's red. Uh, it won't work. Uh, they can't grapple with this thing. It's just out of their context, out of anything they've ever seen. Literally. Um, now, I heard a story of someone trying to do it. Uh, I'm not sure where I heard it, so maybe you've heard this before. You can tell me where it came from. Uh, but this person trying to explain colours to someone born blind uh, sat them down. They got a, a stone that they'd heated up uh, and, and, you know, not scalding hot, but, but hot. Uh, they put it in their hand and said, this is like the colour red. Uh, and it kind of works, doesn't it? And so they went on and, and tried to capture different colours with different kind of feelings. So cold might be blue, yellow might be happy. Um, now, it kind of works, doesn't it? It, it sort of helps. It captures some of what's going on, but it, but it also misses a bunch, doesn't it? They don't really understand red or yellow or blue. Uh, it helps, but it's not the whole picture. You could go the other way, couldn't you? So you could go uh, explain the science, the way that the light spectrum works, and I'm well out of my depth, but hopefully this is right, uh, that different objects reflect and absorb different wavelengths of light, uh, and so the brain translates that into certain colours. You can explain how that works to them. Uh, and again, they'll understand certain aspects of it, certain principles, but it's still not the same as seeing the colours for themselves. Their understanding will always be limited because their sight is limited. When it comes to heaven, there's a sense that we're blind. Uh, we simply don't have the capacity to wrap our heads around what's going on. Uh, to, to understand this new creation, this sinless perfection. How can we relate to that? How can we understand this thing that we've never seen? Uh, and so much of Revelation, and particularly this chapter, is like trying to explain colours to a blind person. Uh, we get a taste but we just can't fully comprehend it. Uh, not until we get there. Uh, and that's good, because if we could understand it, it, it wouldn't be this incredible thing that we're looking forward to. Uh, so we get these metaphors and images and references from other parts of the Bible that are trying to work together to give us a sense of what it's like. Uh, we won't get the whole thing, but it will capture some of it. Uh, we'll get a glimpse of this wonderful future. And I want to say that when we only just start to wrap our heads around it, it's brilliant. It's incredible. This little taster shows us that heaven is going to be incomprehensibly good. And so we should long for it rather than just think of it as something that's kind of nice that's coming. And so now we're going to look at, at some of the pictures that we get. These two images that are there in Revelation 21. Uh, and we'll try and get that taster, that, that sense of what heaven will be like. Uh, so the first one uh, we'll look at is this city. Um, now, it's not a coincidence that this city is called Jerusalem. Uh, it's deliberate. Uh, it's capturing all sorts of history as it uses that name. You couldn't put Morissette down and it would be the same thing. Jerusalem has a history. Uh, it's, of course, the capital in Israel. Uh, it became that under King David. Uh, so it's sometimes referred to as the city of David. 
And it's particularly significant because it's where the temple was built. That was the place on earth where God dwelt. Now listen to what we read about it in 2 Kings. It gives us a helpful sense. It reads, he took the carved Asherah pole he had made and he put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon. In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors. If only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. See, this was a special place, Jerusalem. A place where God would put his name forever if only they would keep his commands. Uh, But the unfortunate reality is that they didn't. And so Jerusalem was conquered. Its people were exiled to Babylon. Uh, The temple was destroyed. uh, And God's presence left. And we've seen some of that story over the last couple of years in some of our series through Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, You can listen to those on on our website if you want to get a bit more of that. But we also see that God in his grace pointed forward to a future time when he would restore Jerusalem, when things would be made right. And we saw it in the passage we read earlier in Isaiah. And it's important to note that this new Jerusalem that, that we look forward to can't be talking about the one that exists here and now in Israel. Because this new Jerusalem comes in the context of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, but we can go further than that in that this picture of Jerusalem, I don't think is really talking about a physical city at all. Uh, rather, it's talking about the people of God. Um, now, I'm not going to explain that because we'll see that as it unfolds, but so, so you have to take my word for it at the moment. But we'll see that, uh, that, that this city is the people of God as we work our way through it, uh, through this passage. Uh, Now notice uh, that these last few chapters in Revelation give us a bit of a tale of two cities. So not the Dickens novel, uh, but the two cities here being Babylon uh, and this new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is the contrast, the opposite of Babylon, which we've seen the last couple of weeks. Uh, So if you weren't here, that was about two weeks ago. So again, you can listen to the sermon. Uh, But we saw that Babylon wasn't a specific city. Uh, but a collective term for people who are in rebellion against God. Uh, It's the allure of the world. Uh, Those people who don't belong to God trying to draw them away from him. And this new Jerusalem is its opposite. Uh, It's God's people, those who've overcome by holding on to Jesus. And so the description of this city, the new Jerusalem, is the description of what heaven will be like for God's people who overcome And so, like I said, we won't be able to pick up all the many references here, but I I want to work through some of the main ones uh, so we can get that picture. Uh, So we'll start with verses 12 to 14, so in Revelation 21, uh, it's up on the screen. reads, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
Uh, so we've got this city described as having 12 gates, uh, and we're told each gate uh, represents each of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and then 12 foundations, uh, one for each of the 12 apostles. Uh, and so in that, we've got representatives uh, of God's people, both old and new. Uh, and so again, the city is not so much a set of buildings, but, but we see it standing for God's people. Uh, look at the size of it. We see it in, in verses 15 to 18. Uh, So the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. Uh, Now before we break down what stadia and cubits mean and, and what the real size is, and it's good to take notice of the numbers involved. 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Uh, and so we see those 12s again, uh, a number that's, that's come up lots in Revelation. Uh, and again, 144 cubits thick, so 12 by 12. Uh, like the 144,000 people that we've already seen in Revelation uh, as a representation of all God's people. And so all of this is giving us more pointers towards this city being made up of God's people. Uh, now, for those who aren't familiar with, with what size a stadia is, if it's not part of your everyday measurement, uh, probably it isn't. A stadia is about 1.8-ish kilometres. A cubit is just under uh, half a metre. Uh, so if we put that all together, uh, this city is 2,200 kilometres, roughly, uh, in each direction, wide, long, high. Uh, and the walls are about 65 metres thick. Uh, And so to put that in real terms for you, uh, if I made a a rough footprint over the map of Australia uh, of that, it would look like this. So it's not very square, sorry about that, I'm not very good at Google. Um, But it's a pretty big city, right? Um, If you think in terms of the original readers and and their world, uh, it was about the size of the Roman Empire. This single city is roughly the size of the populated world that they know. It's massive. It's incredible. Uh, But it's not just wide and long. It's that high as well. Uh, Now, I have to admit, when I read that and and heard, okay, what does 2,200 kilometres up mean? I have no idea how high things are, uh, except for maybe the odd building. My house is, I don't know, five or six metres or something, and that's pretty scary high. Uh, but, so I looked it up. So most airplanes travel about nine kilometres up. That's kind of the standard. Uh, and it's generally accepted that space begins from about 100 kilometres up. Uh, so most satellites travel between 160 kilometres up and 1,600 kilometres up. No, sorry, 2,000 kilometres up. Uh, so the International Space Station cruises around the Earth around 400 kilometres up. So this city... Uh, is blocking the space station from doing its orbit. So it's a pretty big city. Uh, There you go, there's a fun representation. Now, this city that is massive, well and truly up into space, what's the point? What is this about? Uh, Well, uh, like I keep saying, I don't think this is a physical description uh, that we're looking forward to. Rather, I think we're supposed to notice two things in particular. Uh, on top of the significance of the 12s and the numbers that are used. Uh, So those two things. Uh, Firstly, 
that this place is huge. Uh, as big as the world that they knew. Uh, if anyone worried that there wouldn't be space enough for them to get into heaven, they could read this and worry no more. Uh, room for all of the Lamb's followers. Now, the second thing to notice is that this city is a cube. Uh, and that's significant because the only other really significant cube that we see in the Bible is this one. Uh, we find it right at the heart of the temples, a place called the Holy of Holies, uh, or the most holy place. Uh, and it was a perfect cube. Uh, and this Holy of Holies was significant because it was the place in the temple specifically where God dwelt. Uh, it could only be accessed by the high priest and he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. Uh, it was the same room uh, that had this thick, thick veil, this curtain across it. Uh, the curtain that ripped when Jesus died on the cross as, as it was finished. Uh, that was symbolic. We were given access to God. The point is an amazing one. This cube-shaped city is like the Holy of Holies in that this is the place where we'll find God. Uh, in heaven, there won't be a, a special room where God dwells away from people, uh, only accessible once a year, but he will be there with us face to face for all eternity. And there's no space that you can go to where God isn't. That's why in verse 22 we read, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no temple because God is there everywhere. There's no need for a temple. Uh, in a sense, the whole city is the temple. Uh, it's really similar to, to an image that we see described in Ephesians, uh, and it describes the temple. Have a listen. It says, uh, and this is after talking about the Jews and the Gentiles being made one, no dividing wall between them. Uh, it says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Heaven... The gathering of God's people is the place where God will dwell with his people for all eternity. Um, we'll shoot back up to verse 3 of 20, chapter 21 where it describes what it means that God dwells with us in heaven. So have a look. Uh, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Dwelling with God means that everything changes. The old is gone. There's no more death or crying or tears or pain. Uh, now that's a, a wonderful picture that's next to impossible to imagine, isn't it? Uh, we can't conceive of a world where, where those things don't exist. We don't experience a single day without them. That picture of God, of being in God's presence, uh, is expanded more as we read through this chapter. So I'll read from verse 23. 
that the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the land its land. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no, no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The really simple picture is a city where we're never in danger, where the gates never need to be closed because there's no enemies. There's no nighttime or darkness to fear, no sin to derail things, no shame left. And it's spectacular. Right through this passage, I've barely touched on these precious jewels, these shining brilliantly, the streets that are made of pure gold. Your greatest treasures here on earth are trinkets in heaven, the pavers they use for the road. It's an incredible picture. And I think these bits are the bits we tend to grab onto best when it comes to heaven. Uh, Though we struggle to to grasp it, uh, because it really is so unbelievable, that's what is easy to hold on to, this incredible, glorious city that that there's no pain or suffering. But there's another dimension that's at play here, and and it's the one I think that we tend to overlook and miss out uh, as to the detriment of our understanding of heaven. Uh, And that is our third point. That this image of heaven is like a bride. Now the bride image isn't a new one in the Bible. It it comes up a lot uh, through the Bible with with, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, God's people is often compared to like his marriage partner. Uh, And so that's why often when Israel turns to idolatry, it's called adultery. uh, Because they're betraying that marriage covenant. In fact, the whole book of Hosea, if you've ever read it, uh, it's this enacted parable, I guess, of of God's relationship to his people uh, as Hosea is married to this unfaithful woman. Uh, And so this this marriage picture is not new in the Bible. Uh, And in fact, we get a really plain accounting of it in the book of Ephesians again. Uh, And it tells us that the church is the bride of Jesus. Uh, So let's read it. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Um, Now if you are in doubt before. uh, In Revelation 21 the new Jerusalem and the bride of Christ are clearly the same thing. And here the bride of Christ is clearly the church, the gathered people of God. And so it becomes clear that the ultimate fulfilment of these promises of God to make a new world uh, with his people is carried over into the church in the New Testament. 
Uh, that's what it's talking about. This picture is, is the ultimate fulfilment of God with his people. Uh, his followers in the Old Testament, his church in the New. Um, now, God may decide to make heaven a giant cube-shaped city. Uh, he may dress it up beautifully. Uh, but the point of Revelation 21 is not the physical description. Rather, it's a description of what eternity will be like for the people of God. The overcomers who get to dwell with him for all of eternity. Uh, and I want us to notice what an incredible picture it is. That God chooses to describe this relationship with his people as one of marriage. Oh. Often when people think of heaven, uh, when we talk about the things we're excited about having, uh, sadly we don't talk much about this relationship. But, but it's the pinnacle. This is the ultimate part of it. Uh, the heart of this description of heaven is that God is there with his people. Uh, it's all through it. Uh, in verse 2, the bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Relational. Verse 3, God is dwelling with his people. Verse 4, there's no tears, uh, suffering, crying, pain. Why? Because God wipes the tears away. At the heart of heaven is the marriage between the lamb and his bride. God to his people. That's the thing that makes heaven great. But instead we focus on heaven as a place of streets paved with gold. Or no more tears. Uh, Which, don't get me wrong, they're great things. But they're the buffet at the wedding. Our eyes should be fixed on the marriage. On the husband and wife. Not the food. Now you might find this image of heaven being like a marriage to Jesus as being a little bit weird. Uh, It kind of doesn't gel quite right for us. Uh, And it's obviously not the same thing as as the marriage that we have here on earth. Um, But it's good to think about what marriage is at its heart. Marriage at its best should give us a sense of what this relationship with God will be like. Marriage, when it's working, should be the closest relationship that we can have. Uh, Curse, without a doubt, knows me better than anyone else does, aside from God. Uh, She loves me more than anyone else in the world. Uh, And that's reciprocated. Uh, And because of that closeness, uh, there's an incredible joy that comes, isn't there? A satisfaction that that other relationships just can't get close to. Uh, Aside from perhaps the parent and child relationship. um, Which, interestingly enough, shows up in this chapter as well. So verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. See, now here on earth, those relationships not only have the capacity to bring us the most joy, but in our sinfulness, they can also do the most damage. We recognise that, don't we? Uh, Because they're the relationships that hurt the most when they break down. Uh, But here we've got a picture of this incredibly close relationship A relationship that brings this incredible joy because it's at its best, uh, but it's in a place without sin, where it can't be damaged, where we can't hurt the other person like our experience of earthly relationships. I think a great illustration for the love we experience on earth, uh, and in particular marriage, is like the, the little sample spoon that we get when we go to the ice cream shop. So, you know, the ones you go in and you're trying to choose which one and they give you a little taster. I've definitely abused the system a little bit over the years. Um, 
But we know that that sample spoon is just a taster. We wouldn't be satisfied if that's all we ever got. It's just a hint at how good that ice cream will be. That's marriage on earth. It's the hint. It's the taster. But heaven is the whole punnet. Heaven is, is that in its fullness. Ultimate relationship. That's what we have to look forward to. The best on earth is just a taster of what's to come. Uh, now in the last 15 years or so, there's been a new phenomenon in Christian books. Uh, something you might call heaven tourism. Uh, I don't know if you've come across it. Uh, there's quite a lot out there. There's some movies as well. Uh, each of these books that, that seem to come out uh, give an account of someone who's died uh, and gone to heaven before being revived and coming back. Uh, there seems to be a disturbing number of like toddlers that have books written about them on it. Uh, all their stories come out a little bit differently, so it's a different heaven in each one, uh, which kind of gives you some doubts about their legitimacy. Uh, but they're super popular, uh, bestsellers. Uh, and it's popular because people want to get this taste. They want to know what heaven is going to be like. Uh, and I can't say I've read most of them. Uh, I read one of the first ones that kind of came out in this trend, uh, a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven by a guy named Don Piper, not to be confused with John Piper, different guy. John Piper's great. Uh, but having read 90 Minutes in Heaven, I can definitively say, don't bother. Don't waste your time with it. And in fact, I'm confident enough to say of all of these books, don't worry about it. Don't read it. Don't give it your time. Uh, And aside from my doubts that there's any truth to them, uh, here's the biggest reason why. They make the excitement of heaven about seeing loved ones who died, uh, about feelings of euphoria, uh, about being pain-free. And don't get me wrong, those are great things. They're things we can look forward to. But they're not the great hope of heaven. The great hope of heaven is God dwelling with us. That's the picture here. Uh, and it's a thing that is far better than all of those other great things. And now that's hard for us to imagine. Like we saw earlier, it's a bit like uh, a blind person trying to understand colour. We can't wrap our heads around just how good this will be. But this chapter, Revelation 21, wants you to know that it's the ultimate hope for us that we'll have this thing. Uh, and that it's certain for us who follow Jesus that we will have this relationship with God and it will be the best thing that we can ever imagine. And so it leaves us with the question, what do we do with it? What do we do with Revelation 21 here and now? We're not in heaven yet. Uh, What does this passage hold for us? Uh, As we start to think about that, it's good to remember the context. Uh, Who was this first written to? Uh, It was written to uh, a group of people under heavy persecution who were desperately trying to hold on to Jesus, uh, who needed that encouragement to overcome. Uh, And God gave them this picture of where things will end up. He showed them that what they were experiencing was temporary, but an incredible future awaited for them. That's true for us as well. Uh, We might not be going through the same sort of persecution as they were, uh, but there's certainly moments where we ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth enduring all this? Is Jesus worth my time? Uh, And this passage shows us that the answer is a resounding yes. The future is bright 
hang on, overcome. This passage should spur us on to really hold tightly to Jesus. And I think we actually we get a little bit more insight than that. Because this passage shows us where things are at their best. And that is in relationship with Jesus. We look forward to the ultimate expression of that relationship in heaven. But the good news is you don't have to wait. You're in a relationship with Jesus right now. That relationship is is at the very heart of Christianity. See, this hope of heaven is about helping us to hold on now. And what do we hold on to? Jesus. The very mark of a Christian, those who are headed for this wonderful place, is not whether they go to church, it's not whether they were baptised or confirmed as a kid. The mark of a Christian is that they are in a relationship with Jesus. And so I want to urge us not to forget that. Christianity isn't a list of things to do. It's a relationship. And so we should invest in that relationship. Uh, It comes up as application a lot, and I think that's because we need to hear it a lot. But we need to spend time with with Jesus. We need to spend time in his word. We need to spend time in prayer. I, for one, am tempted, especially at a time like this point in the year where things are busy, there's lots going on, to just make it a task that I'm doing, to skim read through whatever reading I was doing that day to get in quick and get out so I can get on with things. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has that struggle. We've seen this illustration of marriage as being like our relationship with Jesus. Imagine if I had that attitude to cursed. I've got lots to do, I'll get in, I'll get out, skim the conversation. I wouldn't be celebrating seven years today if, if that was my approach. Wouldn't work, would it? Quality time with her means slowing down, making our time together a priority. It's a healthy marriage when we do that. We've got to do the same thing with Jesus. We've got to slow down. As you read the word, remember why you're reading. You're not there to pick up bits of information. But you're there to spend time getting to know, getting to grow closer with your Lord and Saviour. This relationship that you're investing in for all eternity. We speak to him, not not because he needs to know what you've got to say. He he already knows. We speak to him because we want to share with him. It's relational. That's the encouragement from this passage. Eternity is with Jesus. Start investing in it now. Invest in your relationship with him. Because it's going to last forever. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for this incredible picture that you've given us of heaven. This picture that uh, is just so hard for us to wrap our heads around. Uh, A place with, with no crying, no mourning, no pain, no death. Lord, we thank you that 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 joy is because we get to dwell with you. Uh, Lord, we long to see you face to face. Lord, please sustain us uh, while we wait for that future to come. 
Lord, help us to invest in it now. Help us to spend time with you. Help us to spend time in our words. Help us to grow in your word. Help us to grow in our love for you. And Lord, we long for the day when you return. And we pray it in Jesus' amazing name. Amen. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing.